0: Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, uh, Pandora, GoodPods, whatever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as Let's Talk Micro, on X, which to be Twitter, as Let's Talk Micro 1. On LinkedIn, as Luis Plaza. And I also have an email address, which is letstalkmicro at outlook.com. So please subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, leave a review if the app allows you to do so. And if you have any feedback, any suggestions, like any topic you think you might make a good guest, you can always reach out via social media or you can email me at letstalkmicro at outlook.com. If you haven't listened to the last episode, the latest one, please go ahead and do so. Season 3 kick started with a great episode on the AMR subseries, which was episode 2, and this one was about beta-lactam antibiotics. So, as I said before, in this series, Dr. Andrea Princey is the co-host, and we had a guest, Dr. Brian Rowe. So we talked about the beta-lactam antibiotics, we talked about the mechanism of action, which in the case of the beta-lactams, you know, they target the cell wall, and it's not the only uh, class of antibiotics that does this, but it uses a different pathway. So we talked about that, you know, we talked a little bit about the differences between, the, you know, the the cell wall of gram-negative organisms versus gram-positive. We went over the beta-lactams, you know, we talked about penicillin, you know, carbapenems, cephalosporins, and degenerations. We talked about the CLSI, and, you know, we talked about the Appendix B and intrinsic resistance and how is that helpful when we are, you know, how does that relate to beta-lactams and why do we need to know this information? So overall, it was a great episode. It was very informative and down the line, you know, we'll continue publishing more episodes about the, on the AMR subseries. So I hope you enjoyed it. And if you haven't listened to it, please go ahead and do so. So on today's episode, we talked about Francisella and you know, thankfully we don't we don't see it a lot in the lab, um, but we are trained to recognize it, right? And it has the potential of being used as a bioterror agent. So two guests come to the podcast, Dr. Ryan Relich and Dr. Kenneth Gavina from the Indiana University School of Medicine, and they joined the podcast to talk about a case from blood cultures where Francisella was recovered. So we break it down. You know, we talked about biochemicals. Morphology, what should we do when we suspect it? And we also talk about the importance of being able to recognize these organisms and follow proper protocols, you know, to always have a plan in place. Since we rarely see it, uh, sometimes, you know, we go into this type of situations where we recover an organism from a culture and then we are unable to identify it, you know, it's growing poorly, instruments are not given a proper ID. And then we start consulting with people, right? And then we maybe involve a senior tech, a supervisor, maybe another tech. And all of a sudden, you have four or five people that are involved in this. And then you end up getting one of these organisms. And then everyone has to go into some sort of prophylaxis treatment. So we definitely need to keep these organisms in mind Uh, when we are working on cultures. We make sure that we follow the proper protocol and we stay safe. So it's very important to review the procedures of the lab. And I mentioned also the resources, right? Like the, like the ASM handbook, which tells you when to suspect organisms like this. So overall, it was a great episode with Dr. Brian Relich and Dr. Gavina. And both of them, they're going to be coming back on the podcast with other topics. So definitely a great episode. I hope you enjoy it. So let's go ahead and listen to it. So on today's episode, we are here to discuss an article and a bug that is very significant, um, that we don't see that often in the lab, but sh- we should always be prepared for it. So this article is titled, The Briefcase, Suspicious Gram-Negative Cocobacilli, Francis Selva Tularensis, Suspicious Novicida, Isolated from an Immunocompromised Patient. This was published in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology in June of this year, and this is a journal from the American Society for Microbiology. So with me today, I have two guests. Dr. Kenneth Gavina and Dr. Ryan Relich. Doctors, welcome to Let's Talk Micro.
1: Thank you. Hi, Louise. Thanks for having us.
0: Definitely my pleasure. So for the audience, you know, can we go ahead? Let's start with a quick introduction. You know, like what do you do and anything else that you want to tell the audience? Absolutely. Ken, why don't you go first? Thank you, sure.
1: So my name is Ken Gavina. Um, I am the director of clinical microbiology and serology here at Eskenazi Health in Indianapolis. I'm also an assistant professor of clinical pathology and laboratory medicine with the IU School of Medicine. Um, in terms of a little about me, I am a recent CPEP graduate and new to my role, uh, and I had a, a wonderful mentor uh, with our our, our co-guest today um, throughout fellowship, so I'm very excited to be part of this uh this this episode with a, a good friend and mentor of mine.
2: All right, well, thank you, Dr. Gavina, uh, and I am Dr. Ryan Relich. I am the medical director of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Indiana University Health, as well as the medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit Laboratory um, and interim medical director for the Division of Molecular Pathology. And in the not so distant future, um, I will also serve as medical director of a new Uh, donor screening laboratory for stem cell donors um, that we're opening here at the IU Health Pathology Laboratory in Indianapolis. Um, In addition to that, I am an associate professor of clinical pathology and laboratory medicine and an adjunct associate professor of microbiology and immunology at the IU School of Medicine. Um, And I have a uh, research laboratory. It's basic research and translational research um, I study emerging viruses, so uh, high containment viruses that require BSL-3, things like MERS, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, and a variety of arboviruses.
0: Well, you know, once again, you know, thank you for being here. Uh, both of you, you know, I kind of just, through social media, I've seen you before. I had the chance to meet you in person at ASM. I think, Dr. Rich, you know, years ago, I, see, I saw you in a conference. I didn't speak to you. I just saw you speak. But we had a chance to chat briefly at the ASM. Okay, so let's go ahead and start with a quick overview of the article.
1: Yeah, maybe I can start us off on this one. So this was a case that we saw here at one of the hospitals within our IU uh, health system. Um, It was a 63-year-old immunocompromised male um, who presented to the hospital with uh, acute pancreatitis, Um, had a very interesting case history. So the patient had a past diagnosis of uh, blastomycosis, uh, which is a dimorphic mold that we see here quite frequently in the state of Indiana, Um, had tobacco and alcohol use, but also had um, what he described as a frequent outdoors or uh, woods living activity. So um, this patient in particular would live outdoors, kind of off the wilderness in his backyard adjunct to his house. Um, So he was really kind of the clinical microbiologist or infectious diseases dream of a case study with all the possible differentials that you could have. Um, So he was admitted for acute pancreatitis and um, subsequently his blood cultures when they came to the laboratory were isolated for um, a fraticella organism, which kind of led to uh, us publishing this paper as a case study, mostly on the case of laboratory safety and why it's important to be able to recognize these organisms, um, but uh, to to use as an educational resource. And it's also just quite a fascinating story itself.
0: Um, Yes. So when, as I was reading the article, so, you know, as the point of view of of a medical lab scientist, you know, working with plates, you know, day in and day out, a lot of times, you know, we definitely, we learn about these organisms in school. Uh, we don't see them as often uh, in many areas. And then we do, you know, we, we you know, we get like a proficiency service every year in the lab to train for it, to recognize them. But sometimes, you know, people don't really think of them right away when you're getting your, you know, your workflow is not growing, you know, you go through like reviewing a smear, maybe resetting it, maybe add an additional plate if it's needed. So when did the laboratory start thinking of the of the possibility of a biological threat agent?
2: Yeah, so um, Dr. Gavina and I were consulted on this case um, whenever the gram stain was reviewed. There were small gram-negative coccoid organisms present uh, within the blood culture gram stain. Um, and at that point in time, there wasn't a whole lot of consideration given to the possibility of francisella. The organisms were actually a bit large, um, we thought for francisella tularensis. Um, and so the, the subculture plates um, were read at the bench by the technologist who then later alerted us to the fact that um, all of our conventional diagnostic methodologies that we use for microbial isolate identification failed to yield an identification. Um, and so, uh, at that point in time, we got concerned that, oh boy, maybe this is Francisella. You know, it just looks a little bit different than what you would expect from the textbook photographs. Um, I have some preserved slides of Francisella tularensis and compared the two and they look nothing alike. Um, and so, uh, subsequently out of an abundance of caution, we decided to, uh, handle these cultures as if they were a select agent. Um, and eventually the cultures, um, after going through as much, uh, rule out testing that we perform in house, they were submitted to the Indiana department of health laboratories, um, for additional testing. They serve as our select agent reference laboratory as part of the laboratory response network. And so they did the additional, um, physico chemical testing as well as genetic testing, to render a preliminary identification of francisella to Lorensis.
0: Okay, yes, yeah. so, you know, it, and it can be, you know, sometimes, yeah, with, with like with the service that we get, we kind of like prepare, and then we're going over, you know, we get case studies with the samples, and we're kind of just ruling them out. But yeah, I like guess in the mix of cultures, yeah, after initially, it can be a little difficult to start thinking about francisella, but as, as you were saying, yeah. So let's go ahead and and for the audience, if you're just tuning in and this is your first episode, um, I did an episode with senior that you can go back and I actually, if you have questions about what the laboratory response network is, you can definitely go ahead and check those episodes out and I go over them. So let's go ahead and so the blood culture ended up having Francisella. So let's go ahead and, and just break it down, you know, um, biochemicals, you know, reservoirs. How do we acquire it? How do we ID it? So let's go ahead and, and do that.
1: Sure. So um, I think to Dr. Relich's point, typically what will happen is at the time, the blood culture bottles flagged positive um, off the instrument. So we pulled them off our um, at our institute. We were using the Bactech FXs um, and we performed a direct gram stain from the bottle. So um, as was mentioned previously, these were some smaller gram-negative bacilli, although To to his point, um, they did look a little bit big of what typical Francisella species would normally look like. Um, From there, our reflex test um, at the time was the varagene blood culture gram negative panel. So we threw the isolate onto the varagene instruments, which failed to yield um, an identification. Um, From there, routinely, we would then move to our culture plates. So at the time, we use a blood agar plate, chocolate plate, um, as well as a McConkie agar. Um, And a a CNA. Uh, We then saw growth, uh, I believe it was after 48 hours of incubation on the plates, uh, on both the chocolate and the blood. And to kind of further um, muddle the mixture, so to speak, these colonies um, were also pretty atypical of what normal Franticella would look like. Uh, we would typically expect these colonies to be a little bit uh, slower growing. Um, we would expect to see them on the chocolate agar um, and maybe scant growth or no growth on the blood agar. But these were noticeably larger um, than we would typically see from a fraticella isolate. Um, so from here, we would move on to um, some of our more traditional biochemical methods. And as you mentioned, um, uh, there, there are some fantastic resources uh, on... Um, APHL, which is the Association for Public Health Laboratories, they they provide a sentinel card resources for different select agents and biothreats, and francisella is certainly chief among them. Um, But some of the biochemicals that we're particularly interested in looking at when we're looking at these gram-negative cocco bacilli would be the oxidase test, Um, and we would expect francisella to be negative uh, in this case. Um, Another test, biochemical test that we can perform that's fairly rapid and easy is a catalase test. Um, In this case, we would expect it to be negative or weakly positive. Um, And it was weakly positive um, in the case of um, our our case here. And then a urease test, which we would also expect to be negative. Um, Additional tests that might be helpful um, for the identification of francisella would be a beta-lactamase test, which could be positive. And then um, a satellite test, which is helpful for differentiating francisella organisms um, from Haemophilus influenza. So a satellite test, um, as, I'm, as I'm sure you've talked about before in previous episodes, and many of our listeners are aware of, um, are looking at our X and V factors, which is our NAD and our human factors and the requirements for growth. Um, so with a satellite test with francisella, we would expect to see growth um, independent of these discs, whereas uh, haemophilus influenza, we would expect to see the growth kind of isolated to the X and V factors that are required for growth.
0: Yes, you know, and thank you for that. Uh, I have definitely uh, talked about it, and it's always nice to provide that visual when students see the colonies around. And it's even greater when you see it in in an actual culture that all of a sudden, you know, you see the little dots around the Staph aureus, and then let me take a look at that chocolate, and boom, there it is, all nicely grown for Haemophilus. So, as far as, you know, as I was reading the article, also with identifying it, you know, sometimes some platforms can be a little uh, misleading. So in this case, it was ultimately identified by, was it by PCR? And then, so how do we normally identify it? This is the way to actually identify it. I mean, at this point in time, yes, when we suspect Francisella, we use our laboratory response network and we send it, which ends up being, you know, your health department from the state. And so is this how it is identified?
2: Yeah, at our institution, um, suspected isolates of select agents get sent to, Um, the Indiana Department of Health Laboratories, who are responsible for performing additional characterization, um, they did end up sending this isolate on to their reference laboratory, the top-tier lab CDC, um, who provided the definitive identification of Francisella tularensis. However, um, one thing that was sort of a surprise for us was the fact that it was the subspecies novicida. Um, so, there are four subspecies of Francisella tularensis. There's Francisella tularensis subspecies Holarctica, Mediasiatica, Novicida, and subspecies Tularensis. And of those four, um, Novicida is the one that you kind of hope that you get in the laboratory because it's not a select agent and it is a risk group two pathogen, which is then able to be handled using ordinary standard laboratory precautions at biosafety level two. Whereas the others, um, you know, you ratchet up the biosafety um, work practices and physical containment practices, and you also try to ensure, um, you know, that for biosecurity reasons that all of the culture specimens and other materials associated with the culture are well controlled and locked away and ultimately destroyed. And that destruction being documented and proof thereof uh, being submitted to the Um, DSAT, the Division of Select Agents and Toxins at the Centers for Disease Control within seven days um, of destruction. And so um, fortunately, you know, the whole genome sequencing that CDC did on this isolate indicated that what we were working for or working with was sort of the diet version of Francisella tularensis, which, um, you know, didn't pose much of a laboratory hazard to our technical personnel. Um, And so from there, um, once we got that information back, you know, we sort of stopped all of our um workup that we would do in house for exposures to potential select agents and other um, you know, risk group three type of agents or others that present a, a high likelihood of uh, occupationally acquired infections, um, because there's not really any indication whatsoever for doing any type of uh, post exposure testing or post-exposure prophylaxis or anything of that nature. However, had this been, you know, subspecies tularensis, um, we would have filled out all of the appropriate paperwork and did the post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, And we work with uh, whatever we have instances uh, that require that type of attention. We work with our occupational health physicians and um, other care providers to sort of drive that post-exposure workup.
0: Okay, yes. And uh, as we we're talking about it, I, I like, by the way, that you use that term, the diet version of it. <laughs> I'll, I'll remember that. So as far as, you know, you mentioned that the patient had an, an outdoor living style. So maybe for the audience, can you talk a little bit about And this is mentioned in the article if anyone wants to read it, which I will put on the show notes. Um, so as far as, you know, reservoirs, where can we find uh, Francisella? Yeah, um,
1: that's one of the the beautiful and scary things about francisella is that it it is a zoonotic pathogen with a wide host range. Um, And in the United States alone, there's been reported cases in almost every state with the exception of Hawaii and Alaska, I believe. Um, uh, It's it's generally transmitted by arthropod vectors. So ticks, uh, specifically like the dermocenter ticks, but you can also see it in amblyomma ticks. Um, There are also aquatic vectors too, with like the deer fly and mosquitoes that you can see through voles. it's commonly taught and um, referred to as rabbit fever. Um, so rabbits, and then I think one of the uh, the case stories that we'll often hear in training is the lawnmower incident, where a lawnmower kind of runs over a nest of rabbits, and almost aerosolizes the Francisella into the into the air, which again is one of the major reasons why uh, it, it's so infectious. So to kind of get to that point, um, the the infectious dose with for depending on the subspecies that you're um, you're dealing with can be as low as 10 colony forming units or 10 bacteria, so which is quite low compared um, to some of the other infectious doses of other uh, infectious organisms. Um, but in, in addition to zoonotic um, exposures, so again, you can have contact with infected animals or carcasses. You can have certainly the arthropod vectors um, leading to bites or exposures, um, but you can also have ingestion um, through contaminated food or water. Um, the inhalation of infectious aerosols, whether it be within a laboratory or dealing with these animals, um, is certainly a, a high risk exposure. You can have um, professional uh, exposures or like uh, work class exposures, such as being like a, a veterinarian working with these animals or a farmer or um, even ourselves as a uh, laboratorians having to work up with these specimens without uh, appropriate um, biosafety um, and PPE precautions.
0: Okay. and. So as you, you know, you were, you mentioned the biochemicals and how it should look just to kind of just tie it all up together for the audience. So when you're working with these, um, right, sometimes, you know, a lot of places, the initial stain is done by one area, especially very large facilities, someone else is working the plates. So when, when should we start thinking, you know, maybe this is Francisella?
2: Really, at the time that the gram stain smear from a blood culture, another, perhaps a clinical specimen are interpreted, um, oftentimes discerning these bacteria from proteinaceous debris and quote, background material um, can be difficult. However, in the case of uh, blood cultures, it's typically, I don't want to use the word easy, but these organisms are noticeable And if you have a good quality microscope, you can even distinguish individual cells from one another. Um, And so whenever you see these tiny gram-negative cacobacilli, definitely that should serve as a warning to you that uh, it could be Francisella tularensis or it could be Brucella, uh, one of the um, Brucellosis-associated Brucella species. And let's not talk about the Ochrobactrum Brucella nomenclature thing, Um, but with Francisella tularensis, you should definitely... Um, have heightened suspicion whenever you see that. Um, and subsequently, there should be a system in your laboratory in place for communication of that information to the other laboratorians as well as um, you know, the supervisor, medical director. Um, and it's really up to those folks to um, work together with the laboratory staff to ensure that the appropriate precautions are taken And that the appropriate rollout testing is done. And um, the rollout testing, you know, if your laboratory has a biosafety level three laboratory, um, that those cultures can be taken into and manipulated within a class two type B biosafety cabinet while wearing respiratory protection and sort of the other BSL three garb. Um, then that should be done at the absolute minimum in laboratories that don't have any type of containment space. Um, you know, work should be done always in a biological safety cabinet while wearing the appropriate uh, personal protective equipment. Um, and in addition to that, all of the wastes that are generated as a consequence of culture manipulation um, should be sterilized by autoclaving um, or soaking in a disinfectant for the appropriate time. And now, Um, you know, to put your safety hat on. Also, one of the things that you should do prior to um, doing any of this work really is a safety risk assessment. You know, determine sort of where the weaknesses are, determine what um, type of precautions are necessary for containment um, and are also necessary for abatement of any issues that may be encountered along the way. Um, You should really have... uh, in your standard operating procedures within your facilities, protocols that address um, what happens if there's a breach of containment. You know, what do you do in the event that there are exposures? Because things like that happen. I mean, busy medical laboratory scientists working in microbiology, maybe working up three, four hundred cultures, um, and or more uh, in a large laboratory, and you know, you you need to get your work done. Um, you know the the clinicians are relying upon us for the expeditious reporting of results whenever they're available, um, and so the technologists then are charged with the task of doing a whole lot in a short period of time. So it's easy uh, to just sort of disregard these things, um, and perhaps per, you know the first thing on their mind isn't Francisella brucella or another select agent but just some run-of-the-mill microorganism that they see on a routine basis. And so it's really important, too, to have periodic training sessions and refreshers or, quote, in-houses in order to ensure that everybody's on the same page um, and have abundant resources available to the technical staff as well.
0: Yes, you know, I I definitely agree. And it can be, we definitely, yeah, sometimes, you know, there's a lot of volume and you can definitely, so the importance of training You know, a PPA, a plan in place. Yeah. Because a lot of people sometimes, you know, they're not thinking about this, but definitely, right? um, They should be, especially like you said with the gram stain. And if you start seeing that maybe, you know, the growth is not, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not growing as healthy. It's like a slow grower. Maybe you should start considering that because, you know, you have sometimes, you know, like your hemophilus, you know, it will definitely grow very strong. Uh, when you sit down and look at the cultures, you know the same with the with the pastorella, very healthy on your blood, on your chocolate. So those are also things you know to keep in mind as you're working this. Um, and the communication, yeah, you definitely uh, you said it. You know, sometimes even you know we had cases you know with with Bruxelles where it's actually you know it's it's been suspected, and you know we function as a reference lab for other labs, and no one says anything. And then you got a tech that's opening. I have this you know it's growing poorly it's not identifying and then you know the next step is well let me ask maybe the senior tech so that's two people and then maybe ask the supervisor that's three so you're stuck you know let's ask our director so all of a sudden you know it comes out as Bruxelles, and then you have all these people involved that they were exposed so definitely you know like you said you know training communication and ppe a lot of people You know, most if you're a micro student and maybe a medical lab science students, you know, a lot of these plates, your routine plates are worked out in the open. So if you start thinking about this, definitely follow the proper protocols. So these are all, the you know, I I think this case, you know, it brings all these important facts to light. Is there anything else um, that you think about, you know, that's very important that comes from this case?
1: I I think you you guys really both hit the nail on the head in terms of communication, not not only between um, personnel in the laboratories or inter-laboratories in the case um, that you mentioned, Louise, between like a reference laboratory um, where they might suspect it, but also for our, our clinical colleagues as well. Um, To kind of give the laboratory a heads up, if, um, if the clinical picture makes sense, if you have a patient who maybe is a returning traveler who's been eating unpasteurized dairy for the last two weeks and suddenly develops this undulating fever, maybe give us a heads up Um, because that that's something that can definitely put it on our radar as well and and to your point louise as far as like the it is very common practice in the microbiology laboratory to get a second third fourth fifth opinion when you're unsure of something that's it's the great thing about keeping an open dialogue and communicating unfortunately it's it's kind of a double-edged sword when you're dealing with something that's highly contagious and it's not being handled with the proper precautions so um, i think one of the key aspects um, that I think this case highlights is is that alone is being able to recognize your rule-out algorithms and proper biosafety procedures. An example of this is the reliance that most modern-day laboratories um, have on MALDI, so maldi um, in a sense that we become so reliant with just throwing the organism and spotting it onto our MALDI plate and then throwing it on. However, when we uh, come across a sample that maybe doesn't give us good peaks or maybe a suspicious ID, what do we do? We, we tube extract it, we vortex it, um, all, all, these, all these additional steps which create um, additional exposure risks to the personnel in the lab and typically are also done on an open bench top. They're not gonna be often done in a biosafety hood. And if you're in a situation where your laboratory is set up as uh, like open bays, not necessarily these isolated rooms, you're now creating these aerosols which not just impact the, the lab tech itself who's working that isolate up, but everyone else around that lab tech as well. So I think certainly um, the highlights for me for this case was definitely um, recognizing uh, bioselect agent rule out algorithms and kind of keeping an eye and keeping an open mind about the fact that how our reliance on some of these automated technologies um, and rapid diagnostics such as MALDI-TOF and like even the blood culture identification systems, um, there's there's always going to be a room and a place for rapid biochemicals. Um, and I think that's kind of what this case here highlights.
2: And even to, to that end, uh, morphological observation, um, I'm aware of some laboratories that no longer do the first stop is a gram stain from a positive blood culture. Instead, they'll just blindly put it on their multiplex molecular panel, which could potentially create uh, biohazardous aerosols or requires sort of unnecessary manipulation of the cultures, which we try to avoid whenever we have circumstances um, dealing with select agent cultures. Um, And so good practice is to always start off with a gram stain, You know, that can help influence the decisions you make about, you know, what types of things may be happening. And, you know, the way I kind of look at this is you're feeling you're essentially establishing a profile for these organisms, like a dating profile. You know, you make this list of things that you're looking for and then you start checking off boxes. And once you hit a certain number of boxes then you go, oh, you know, this could be this or this could be that. And I think chief among the things to do early on is do some of the simple things like growth rate determination. And yes, it's growing luxuriantly on chocolate auger after 72 hours, but the colonies are very tiny on the blood auger plates. And, uh, you know, the cellular morphology and its size and gram stain reaction are consistent with brucella francisella, whatever. Um, so even that type of thing uh, is, is very, very important. Um, you know, a lot of these newer technologies are absolutely fantastic. They have been solving problems that we've been suffering with for many, many years. However, they are just tools in a toolbox that also includes some of the more traditional approaches that our medical laboratory scientists, supervisors, and medical directors must absolutely uh, carry into the future. They must continue to be stewards of that knowledge and and judiciously apply it to the laboratory diagnosis of infectious diseases. And the last thing I'll say is that with regard to this case, um, you know, it just goes to show how important it is to have a good working relationship with public health. Um, all too often the public health laboratories may be overlooked in cases like this. However, you know, they they are the right hand or the left hand or vice versa. Um, you know, we you should have a very, very good relationship with your public health laboratories or uh, and reference laboratories and other folks, we're all on the same team. You know, we're working to do, uh, you know, accomplish a common goal. So, you know, maintaining a good relationship or establishing and then maintaining a good relationship with your public health laboratories will ensure that you know things go as smoothly as possible. Um, and just a plug for public health, also. Um, They oftentimes will offer free training for packaging and shipping of biohazardous substances, infectious agents, um, as well as, uh, you know, like select agent 101 type of training, as well as PPE training, work practice training, things of that nature. So those are oftentimes free resources that you and your laboratory personnel can take advantage of in order to, you know, help bolster your own Um, safety practices and work practices in the Clinical Microbiology Laboratory.
1: While we're giving kudos, I think we should also give a huge shout out to our IU Health uh, Infection Prevention and Control Team. Um, Because at the time when we had these exposures, when we weren't uh, sure of the subspecies identification, um, they did a great job um, consulting with us in terms of identifying the um, at-risk or exposed individuals, getting them on the pre-exposure prophylaxis like rapidly, and then watch, symptom watching for the next several days. Um, so. Honestly, it's, it's, it's such an, that's what healthcare is, is it's such an integrated system with so many moving parts that we're all, and to, to Dr. Relich's point, we're all trying to do the best that we can to provide the, the best patient care that we can, but that also involves keeping our, our staff and our laboratories healthy as well. So um, definitely big shout out and props to them.
0: Indeed. It's definitely very satisfactory when, right, when we all work together as a team and you know the, the result is, it's, you know, we all work together and, you know, like you have said, communication, And, you know, you definitely touched some points, uh, Dr. Relich, about, you know, the gram stain. And this is something that I have talked in so many episodes, you know, such a helpful tool. And I will continue repeating it to the audience out there, especially, you know, if you're just a medical lab science student, you know, getting ready to graduate and start your first job, it is a very helpful tool. So, yes, you know, the Molotov is great, but, you know, your biochemicals, your gram stain, you know, it will help you. and, And like Dr. Relich said, you know, uh, I like that term, the dating profile. <laughs> so you're putting everything together, and it is so helpful. And sometimes, you know, you can avoid mistakes just by taking those steps. Gram stain, biochemicals, and it will be surprised. You know how many times you know you get a consult, you talk to someone, and you ask, "Have you done a gram stain?" And they're like, uh, "No." Okay, so you said it failed them all these three times. So gram stain let's see what we got and start from there, and then we'll make a determination. So it's just very helpful tool so please you know if you're listening make use you know use them and they're definitely going to help you you know and stop you from making mistakes which you know in this field you know mistakes you know affect the patient so well um is there anything else that uh, either of you want to add
2: i don't think so at this time but uh, i definitely appreciate you having us on to talk about this and uh dr gavina congratulations on your new position and for being an excellent cpep fellow um you know just a shout out to all the cpep programs throughout the united states um ours is one of you know 21 or 22 programs in existence now and um so for folks out there that are interested in pursuing training to become a medical microbiology or public health microbiology lab director um you know that routes through the CPEP program, I think, is is a really, really great. Um and so this time of year, you know, these programs, including ours, is accepting applications. So definitely look up programs. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not trying to give a shameless plug specifically for IUs program. Um, but uh, you know, if, if you happen to come here, you get to work with me and Dr. Gavina and we get to work on interesting cases such as this uh, typhoidal tularemia case. But with that, uh, uh, I've got nothing else. So thank you very much, Luis, for your time. And you and I will be talking again on Monday about emerging viruses. So I'm really excited about that.
0: Yes, definitely. Me too. And the audience, if you're listening, definitely stay tuned because, you know, that's an episode I'm looking forward to recording and sharing with you. So some great information coming your way. So this has been, you know, great. And once again, you know, I appreciate both of you taking the time to come into Let's Talk Micro
2: yes thank you for having us greatly appreciate it
0: thank you for having us my pleasure and that my dear audience it's the end of this episode I hope you enjoyed learning about Francisella. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. As always, continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. We do such great work. Thank you for the support. Please continue downloading episodes. I appreciate it. I will continue bringing more information to you. So as always, stay motivated stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro until the next time. Bye.